You are listening to 415 Stories, where we are having fireside chats with amazing founders and venture capitalists from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of 405 Stories. I'm your host, Taha. And we're excited not just because it is the very first episode of the show, but also I have an amazing guest for today. He is one of my favorite individuals here in Silicon Valley. And I don't even where to start, but uh, he has done lots of great works. He's a founder, technologist, speaker, a product designer, and beyond all the titles, he is famously known as the inventor of the hashtag. So, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Mason is with me today. Chris, it is such a pleasure for me to have you as the first guest of the show. Welcome to the Forum Five Stories. Thank you. I'm honored. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. So, we have lots of amazing topics to talk about, but I'd like to start from the beginning, actually. You've been around uh, for so many years, right? You've been working on lots of great things for so many years, and you make difference in the internet with various companies and projects. So... What made you decide to pursue such a career that made you end up where you ended up today? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny to think that I've been around a while now, but I have spent um, about 15 years kind of working in the tech world. Um, 14 of those was basically based in San Francisco and um, kind of riding that wave uh, as the, the tech world kind of exploded and became something that, you know, now we kind of take for granted everywhere you go. Um, for myself, I've just always been fascinated and uh, in many ways in love with technology, um, but also design. Um, I care a lot about how individuals can take advantage and use technology. And I think, you know, just based on both where I grew up in New England um, and the struggles that I saw with people around me to try to make use of technology, whereas I found it quite intuitive or quite simple, or I just had a curiosity about it. I wanted to make sure that other people had the same kind of um, opportunities to take advantage of the stuff that I did. And so I pursued a career in um, design, interaction design, graphic design. Um, and also there was kind of um, you know, an undercurrent of, of tech, I guess, in all the stuff that I did. And in particular for me, working on the web and building web products was the perfect merger of my interests in, in design and tech. And that just kind of, I don't know, like my timing just worked out really well when I got out to the Bay Area in 2004 um, and got involved with the Mozilla Firefox project. And that kind of just set the stage uh, as well as the trajectory for everything that I ended up doing after that. Yeah, that's great. So um, I guess you always get this, but Chris, how you invented the hashtag? And I think <laughs> why you invented the hashtag will be a better question to ask, just because I remember when we first met, I listened to you at Draper University. Um, when you converted this question to why are you meant to the hashtag, then I said to myself, wow, there's something coming in. Your speech was actually like one of the most inspiring and insightful speeches I've ever listened to. So Chris, why did you invent the hashtag? I'd like to hear the story in that. Well, I, I mean, well, thank you. I'm, I'm, um, I, 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 I mean, that's just, that's a really great phrase. Um, you know, like, I think what's important for me in the story of the hashtag is really kind of understanding where we were back in the 2005 to 2006, seven era of uh, the social web. These are the early days and there was so much experimentation and so much unknown about the way in which these technologies were gonna reshape you know, humanity essentially. Um, a lot of us that were working on these things just again wanted to build stuff that people used, that people really loved 
that fit into their lives and gave them a new way of expressing themselves um, that had never come before. Um, at the same time, though, you know, Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco in particular is a very interesting economic place. Um, it's really a city of booms and busts. And the last time that there'd been kind of, you know, a lot of money being made was in the first dot-com um, boom. And so there were still a bunch of people who were, I think, in Silicon Valley wanting to, to make a bunch of money from uh, the popularization of technology. For me, though, like I went out to Silicon Valley, um, not because I wanted to get rich, but because um, I believe that that was where all the misfits went, all the people who didn't really fit in everywhere else and yet who loved technology. Um, yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't really all that normal um, a decade to 15 years ago, you know, to, um, to be so into tech and computers. I mean, it really was the realm of the geeks and the nerds. And so it was kind of hard to find your tribe. Um, but when I went out to Silicon Valley, you know, it wasn't too long before I found mine. And a lot of us shared similar values and ideals. And again, like I said, I started my, my work on the Mozilla Firefox project, which was intended to create a platform that would allow anybody to contribute their thoughts and their ideas to the web um, without mm -hmm. getting permission first. And so the fact that I was able to, you know, go and join this project and contribute in a meaningful way, you know, meant that I wanted to pay that forward. So a lot of the things that I ended up working on were trying to figure out how to make the web less focused on documents as a core concept or organizing principle of digital information, but instead to also represent people and their relationships. And so I did a lot of work in that realm. Um, and around 2006 to 2007, um, you know, Twitter started to take off as a new platform for allowing people to publish what they were doing over, over text messaging, over SMS. You know, this is right around the time when the iPhone was coming out. So we really weren't using the iPhone um, like we do and like we take for granted today. And so as we had had in, in previous eras of, of social web technology, um, like Flickr or um, upcoming.org and some of these other projects um, that were group oriented, we were trying to find a way to enable groups to coalesce on Twitter just over text messaging. And it was, it was becoming, you know, really tricky. You know, a lot of people wanted to just kind of build the thing that we'd already seen before um, that required a web browser. But I wanted to make sure that whatever it was that we built would be sort of mobile first, mobile friendly, and accessible by people who didn't have a web browser or didn't have necessarily a full, you know, keyboard um, to, to join and contribute. And so I took a look at the limitations of um, text messaging I took a look at the phones that were available at the time. I took a look at um, something called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, uh, which is where a lot of my friends would kind of like hang out. It's you know kind of like what yeah. Slack, you know, right? Kind of looks like, and um, you know, just kind of put all these things together. It was like, well, what is the thing that's going to work in all these different contexts? And um, you know, in IRC we had channels, and in a channel you could join the channel and you could have a topic of conversation. It was like a room, like a chat room. I was like, well, what if we brought chat rooms to Twitter, but made it so that you know, you could use any word in a tweet to kind of indicate that you wanted your content to go to that chat room, right? So it wasn't like you had to go to the chat room first because that would take too much work. Instead, just say what you want and then identify a certain word as being important and then the service will figure out how to get that to, to the right people. And so yeah. that's kind of how, how the hashtag came about. And then I wrote up a proposal for it. I published it on my blog and then I took it to Twitter's headquarters and, um, you know, they were having a lot of scaling problems at the time. And so when I presented it to, to Biz Stone and co-founders, he just, you know, kind of looked at me like, you know, look, dude, I got like a million other uh, feature requests right now. Uh, we can barely keep the service up and running. I think what you're <laughs> suggesting is just, it's way too nerdy. It's never going to catch on. But, you know, thanks thanks for uh, for using us. And, uh, you know, I'll see you later. 
yeah, but like you proved them wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I did, but it also took a while. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about the hashtag, and I think it's, it's important for me with as popular as the hashtag is in, in modern language and usage, it's also, I think, a story about being humble because the hashtag would not have succeeded if social media itself didn't, didn't succeed. You know, it doesn't really live outside of the, uh, I mean, it does live outside of the digital realm, but if there wasn't the digital realm that we rely on today, you know, hashtags wouldn't really make as much sense. So there's this interesting dynamic where I kind of think of like the hashtag as like the barnacle that rode the social media whale, you know, to success. Like it sort of went along for the ride um, and it kind of became ubiquitous because it could be used on any social platform. It was intended to not just be for Twitter, but to be useful anywhere where people could use text. Again, just like uh, you can have multiple web browsers that all use web technologies. The hashtag is a similar idea that should be useful by anybody who wants to create text or share their ideas online. Yeah, I mean, that's a great story and a perspective. So like, I mean, I use hashtags every single day, even if I'm in a text conversation with my friends and even it's not the right way to use, but I literally mark my important conversations with the hashtag, but like hashtag this or hashtag that to make it like clear when I'm searching up. So there are so many ways to use it. And also it's been like more than 12 years since we came up with the concept. So what kind of usage of the hashtag you've seen so far and how the usage of the hashtag evolved since it came, it became a thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it has been 12 years and you know, that just seems like such a long time, but on the other hand, in the course of human history, it's, it's nothing, right? So it's actually quite fast. Yeah. It's like a um, second. <laughs> right. Exactly. So everything's relative, but uh, I think the thing that I think is so interesting to me is just the, the, both the, the dexterity and the flexibility um, of communication that the hashtag has unlocked. Um, uh, a good friend of mine called hashtags kind of like this, like sort of linguistic portal that allows people to communicate over space and time in a way that, again, doesn't require any um, prior coordination. Like uh, I've been out with other friends and they'll tell me how sometimes they just make up hashtags um, sort of randomly, you know, they, they, they think, well, whatever. I mean, like they don't even know why they're doing it. It just sort of feels like the thing that you're supposed to do. And they'll come up with mm-hmm. something strange and arbitrary and just made up and they'll post, you know, an Instagram photo or a tweet. And I think the thing that I find so interesting is that sometimes they'll then just out of curiosity, you know, tap on the hashtag and they'll find other people that have actually shared the same thing, even though they thought it was completely esoteric and that no one else would yeah. use it. And that to me is, I guess one of the amazing things about, on the one hand, you know, just experiencing, you know, humanity and, and uh, human experience where we are not so dissimilar. Um, and in fact, people could be having very similar ideas all over the world. Um, and yet previously, it might be really, really hard to find them, especially if you were just uh, restricted to using existing words or language. The hashtag allows you to just create all sorts of symbols and all sorts of different um, combinations of words. But if you find the right key, you can literally unlock a portal to anybody else in the world who might be experiencing something very similar. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I find most interesting and powerful, um, you know, in the last 10 to 12 years of, of kind of watching the evolution of the hashtag. Yeah, that's really cool. So, um, Chris, let's get into a question that I'm really curious about. So you've been working on internet for so many years, and I'm sure that you have witnessed lots of trends hyping up and down 
like from the dot-com bomb to a world of thousands of tech startups. So you actually also came up with something that actually let those friends like spread itself around the world. And we are closing a significant decade, right? We have seen so many exciting tech companies founded and became worldwide successes like uh, Uber, Instagram, like such as many others. And I'd like to ask you, what do you think it will be a next big concept or hype for the Poland decade? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point, right? Like we've only got uh, a couple months left in, in this decade and then we're off into 2020 and 2020 is supposed to be, I mean, at least symbolically a pretty big year um, as far yeah. as, you know, you know, flying cars, jetpacks and all the rest. Um, and the funny thing is, it's like a lot of those things are actually being worked on now. So our, our science fiction um, future is, is actually upon us. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that I'm interested in, and this is always really tough, it's tough to predict the future because on the one hand, we sort of expect things to kind of continue more or less as they are. Um, and the things that are going to happen may look entirely different from anything that we've ever seen before. You know, and, and yet in, in hindsight or retrospect, you can be like, oh, okay, I can kind of see how the seeds of that were planted before. I mean, like Instagram is actually really, on the one hand, nothing new. I mean, people have been taking photographs for, you know, quite a long time and wanting to express themselves through captured still images. On the other hand, the depth and richness and speed and the accessibility and the scale of the number of people who are um, capturing photos and sharing visual imagery today um, dwarfs anything that came before. And so that is actually changing language and connection and communication in a way that, again, is like unprecedented. It's like, what do we do with this? Like all this communication, how do we keep up with it? How do we make sense of it? Um, so on the one hand, there's, I think, a, a a familiarity with digital communication that's becoming more normal as people are able to communicate more and more with pictures and imagery. So that trend I think is going to continue. At the same time, I think what also is happening is that we're entering in a world where synthetic media is becoming more dominant and prominent. Um, and I'm certainly interested even in the short term in what's going to happen in the 2020 election when it comes to deep fakes and, um, you know, made up information, whether that's through videos or through audio clips or whatever. You know, we're about to enter into a space where it's going to be very, very hard for people to, I think, evaluate information for its truthfulness um, with speed and with scale. And on the one hand, that means that we have to believe everything less. Um, and on the other hand, it also should create some kind of, kind of premium for information that is verified or that is validated. And I know that there's a lot of people working on this, uh, but it's yet to be seen how it's actually going to be done at scale and what it'll mean for common discourse, common understanding, I mean, common sense, if it ever was. So I think that's another area that I'm kind of interested in. And then even aside from media, there's just the world of like, I guess, you know, when I was at Uber, we kind of talked about the, the two worlds of atoms and bits. And so I think the world of atoms is going to go through quite a lot of changes as well, um, whether that's changes in food or healthcare or mobility and transportation, um, autonomous vehicles. All of those things are going to change the landscape considerably while we're, of course, also trying to figure out what the heck to do about climate change. So <laughs> there's some really meaty stuff in there, um, but those are the obvious areas. Um, the more subtle things that are going to be quite transformative are going to be those things that affect us kind of from a fulcrum perspective. In other words, where there's a lot of leverage. Like the hashtag is a good example of that where um, because it's like, it's almost like um, uh, how do I think about it? I, I kind of use the analogy of curling, which is like a Canadian sport where you have like this big stone that's kind of like, it's kind of like a flattened bowling uh -huh. ball, you know, and you kind of like, um, 
I don't know, shove it down a lane. It's like a Canadian sport. You shove it down a lane and you have these, what are called um, the sweepers who are out in front with brooms kind of shaving the ice in front of, you know, this big puck that's like going down towards the target. And um, essentially I feel like the hashtag is sort of like a sweeper. It sort of made this modest, slight change to the course of social media history. And over time, the change has had an enormous impact um, uh, across all language. So there's similar things, like what are they gonna be? Are they gonna be changes to augmented reality? Are they gonna be changes in the way that people interact through virtual reality um, You know that have an outsized influence over, like a cumulative effect over time on how people create, connect, make meaning, and make sense of the world? Um, those are the things that I think I'm, I'm kind of most interested in. Yeah. Uh... I think it's a great perspective. So as we talk about the future, as you know, Tesla introduced the Cybertruck. So last, I think last week. And I, I think that the internet is like polarized in two ways, like the ones who likes it or the ones who thinks that it's like a dystopia or something. So what do you think from a design perspective about Cybertruck? Uh, it's funny, I just finished writing a post on this, so I kind of have crystallized some of my thoughts about it. Um, it's actually going to go out tomorrow, um, so this is quite timely. You know, I think the the way that I interpret the Cybertruck um, is, it's hard, because on the one hand, you know, the, the, the easy or facile um, interpretation of it is like, oh, well, they had to do something that kind of looked crazy to, you know, get the marketing hype and to do something exciting and different that's out there. Uh -huh. um, but I think there's something deeper going on. And it could just be because, you know, I'm a quasi-conspiracy theorist and like to see more, you know, meaning than there really is. But if you were to go down this other path and really think about what Cybertruck means, you know, I think what's important is that on the one hand, it's, it's like the iPhone to me. And that when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone in 2007, you know, he called it an iPhone, right? Because the kind of job to be done was that it was going to be a phone that lived in your pocket. But that was sort of only a historical homage to the product that it was intended to replace. And in fact, the more important thing was the I. Like, what did the I in iPhone really stand for? Well, it actually stood for internet. It was an internet phone. And what the internet wow, was- Wow, I didn't know bring, that. Yeah. So on the one hand, there's like I as in like I and me, right? The iPhone is a personal phone. It's like a, the, I think of it as the first personal computer. Um, but the iPhone, even though there's like five letters dedicated to the phone part, the most important part was the I, the internet part, because the internet was unbounded, it was unlimited, and it would ultimately be what was essential to creating this new platform for human interaction, right? So if you take the same analysis and you apply it to the Cybertruck, well, it's important and necessary to call it a truck because it's got four wheels, it's got, you know, a cab and it, you know, kind of like tows stuff and you move it around or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that like the cyber is the more important part. Um, and it turns out that cyber um, is, is a word that was coined um, in uh, 1941 by uh, Norbert Wiener. And uh, it was in his book, Cybernetics. And cybernetics was about feedback mechanisms between uh, humans and animals and uh, machines. So essentially how do these creatures communicate with each other and how do they control one another? Um, the, the word cyber or cybernetics uh, comes from the Greek Kubernetes, uh, which is uh, which means uh, or uh, I think steersman or rudder or guiding or, or driving. So, what I think Cybertruck is really about is going to be a whole host of cyber products that are about autonomous 
agents uh, that will kind of exist in the world. Um, and that's sort of like the first stage. The first stage are a bunch of trucks that kind of drive themselves around. They'll come and pick you up, uh, drop you off. And as a result, because now you could just get into a car or wherever, just like an Uber, your relationship to the vehicle itself now goes away, or at least it changes. Right now, it's just pure utility. I think it's sort of like a, a lawnmower, um, you know, or like an ATV. It's like, you know, you're not going to have an emotional relationship to vehicles in the future like people do today. And yeah, that right. is really important. And I think that's part of the design. The design language is from the brutalist aesthetic. It's from uh, sci-fi uh, movies. You know, it looks like it's straight out of like Prometheus or Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Right. And in those worlds, you have these self-driving cars that are kind of like their own people. And so if we think about that, that is setting up a very different type of relationship between humans and their modes of transportation. So if that's really what this is about, then that is a necessary sort of precondition or pre-situation to get to, which could last the next 20 to 30 years, you know, where we start to become used to this idea that, you know, some random self-driving car is going to come pick us up and, you know, we, car ownership is kind of a thing of the past. But it also, and I know this is like going to sound even more crazy, but it seems very much in line with, and I mean, Musk tweeted about this and granted he could just be, you know, saying something tongue-in-cheek, but it could be the first vehicle that's really designed um, to be a sort of human transportation product for like Mars, right? I mean, why do you need such an insane, uh, you know, type of metal um, for this vehicle, right? Except if it's to withstand pressurized environments. I mean, they're taking innovations out of SpaceX and they're applying it to this, what we think of as a truck, but really it looks like uh, something that could be a space like faring vessel. So yeah. in a way, again, like uh, this probably all sounds crazy to people, but like to me, what the cyber truck represents is a bet on the future. It's to say, look, we're not going to be um, a single planet species anymore. We're going to be living in a world where we're driving electric vehicles, or rather they're driving us around. And we're going to use this very same technology um, to get us to Mars. And even if the Cybertruck V1 is an alpha and isn't designed to be the thing that lands us on Mars itself, it starts to get us thinking differently uh, and thinking differently through aesthetic design um, about what humans should be doing with ourselves. And I say this because I've written these posts in the past. Um, this, this was the third in a series. The first one was, you know, why Silicon Valley is all wrong about the AirPods. The second one was why Silicon Valley is all wrong about the Amazon Echo Show. And in each of these, I was trying to paint the vision for what I understand these companies to be doing or thinking about the future. And so with the AirPods, I was like, look, people are going to have these devices in their ears all the time because we're going to start becoming used to speaking to our computers. It's going to be normal. And a lot of people were like, the AirPods are stupid. Like, they don't look any good, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, Apple is building or designing jewelry that you just want to have on your body, that you want to carry with you everywhere you go. And they want to make computers that are closer and closer to your mind so that when you have a thought, you know, they're the first ones to capture it. And in a similar way, I see the Cybertruck as also trying to shift us out of our, uh, our notions of what a computer should look like to think very differently about what transportation means and what it will look like when we become an interplanetary species. Yeah, like that, that's a great perspective. I haven't think like that, but you also mentioned the uh, San Francisco's behavior. So I actually watched one of your TEDx talks 
By the way, mm. I, I realized that you have more than one. How cool is that? So, <laughs> Jim, yes. you may uh, you may mention that one of those talks that founders' culture eventually affects the user behavior. So, if you think that many of the worldwide social products and platforms are built by the people who lives or lived in here in Bay Area, so I think the general social media behavior could be affected by the San Francisco barriers itself. So I like if you think that the locations is one of the most important aspects that forms the culture. So what is your perspective about that? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the thing that I have really learned um, in my years at Silicon Valley and seeing um, many of the products that my friends have built having downstream cultural consequences. In other words, many of us were building products essentially for people who looked a lot like us. You know, people who didn't have or live in different environments who weren't that socially um, or socioeconomically diverse from us. Um, it was a major blind spot and a major, um, I think, issue when it came to recognizing the privileges that many of us have and take for granted um, and how so much of this technology was largely built by white men who really don't have to worry a lot about, you know, trolls or um, harassment and things like that on the internet. And so we were blind to a lot of that stuff for a long time. And I think in the last several years, um, we've really had a wake-up call. You know, it's like the people who are using these products aren't like us um, anymore. And so we can't just go into or just put products out there with an assumption that everything's going to go okay. So that was really important because, you know, what I think became clear to me was that the culture um, that was producing these products, again, made assumptions about the people who would be using them and ultimately... Um, made different design decisions, different behavioral decisions, prioritized different features based on that culture and based on the ignorance that was embedded in that culture, based on the privileges that were embedded um, in that culture. And so the more that I become aware of my own, I guess, complicity um, in, in that world, the more that I become aware of like my own privilege and the, the, the ways in which I have very rarely felt uh, you know, afraid or fearful by using um, internet technologies, um, the more I, I'm sympathetic to the complaints and concerns that people present. So a lot of, I think, what I've been going about speaking about this year um, during my sort of nomadic journey has been to try to encourage younger founders and entrepreneurs to really become aware of the assumptions that you have built into the way that you perceive the world. Um, what is it that you take for granted that may not apply in other cultures and how do you bridge those gaps? How do you learn to listen more intently and with a greater amount of curiosity um, rather than defensiveness? You know, everyone has a lived experience and everyone is making sense of the world as they perceive it and as it's given to them. Um, and so I think it's really, there's lots of learnings to be had in that. And there's a lot of um, kind of embedded wisdom in different cultures. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with it on the one hand because, you know, culture is kind of a matrix for efficiency. In other words, culture kind of dictates the things that you will and won't do. You know, in some cultures, for example, uh, monogamy is, you know, an expedient way of organizing resources and, um, you know, creating families that reproduce and, you know, therefore are a way of, you know, creating progeny and, mm -hmm. um, you know, taking care of, 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 of people, essentially. But that's not true in all cultures. And so if you, peel apart some of those fundamental assumptions, what does that 
unlock for you? What does that allow you to do in terms of how you think differently? What are the ways in which your software is actually imperiled um, or brittle because you built in assumptions into the product? Uh, you know, for example, um, I listen to a lot of Kara Swisher's podcasts and she um, has pointed out how, you know, she recently had a, had a baby with her, her partner, um, her female partner. And, you know, they were in, I believe the hospital and they were filling out a form and there was a form that was like, who's the father? And of course for them, that's like an irrelevant question. You know, they're a gay couple. And so the fact that, you know, the, in that case, the physical hardware in a sense um, of these forms was actually broken and couldn't be fixed. And so the hospital, which has an interest in having accurate information actually was inhibiting itself from getting the information that it needed. So how many other systems exist like that in the world that are built upon a set of assumptions that actually the more that you expand your user base, uh, the less accurate they are uh, of depicting a reality um, that reflects all the edge cases that are necessary for your software to be you know, useful and fair and just, right? So I think that's one of the things that, I, that I've been learning um, where that, that culture of the founders ultimately has downstream consequences and can affect you in ways that you might never have even anticipated. Great. So um, I have a question about more on the surface, I guess. It's about uh, Y Combinator. So the Y Combinator is one of the most famous and successful startup accelerators here in Silicon Valley. Like hundreds of thousands of startups around the world applying to the program every single batch, but only a few, I guess, around 190 something, somewhere between scale and uh, this last batch getting accepted to the program. And your latest venture, actually, Molly, is accelerated by the YC. So uh, I know this is a little bit cliche, but how did you get into the YC and how was your experience was back in those days? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll provide just a little um, you know, adjustment or context to that. Um, it definitely um, brought uh, this, this company uh, called Molly that I co-founded um, with two other people into Y Combinator. Um, we went through that process um, as, a, as a group and as a founding team. And then um, after we went through Demo Day and raised some money, um, we decided to part ways. And so uh, Molly how, how is now... How much did we raise by the How much did we raise? Yeah. Um, I think uh, it was 200K. I think it's, it's, uh, YC kind of has, has a standard deal. Um, and then, yeah, we, uh, we ultimately raised around two maybe two and a half million or so, um, basically to, to, to build out the product. And so anyways, after I, I departed the company, uh, they pivoted to focus on uh, a video sharing product called um, Squad. So Molly no longer exists, but I can tell you a little bit about the process for getting into to YC and what that was like. Um, you know, we actually, we applied once and got rejected. And so, um, you know, it isn't, it certainly isn't the case that just because, um, you know, I'd been in Silicon Valley for a long time and had relationships that um, it was guaranteed that I would get in. Um, I think, and, and I think they actually made the right choice in, in rejecting us the first time, um, knowing what I came to find out later, both through the second uh, round of applications and then through going through the program. Um, I think YC is like jet fuel uh, for companies that are, you know, have a pretty clear idea for what they want to do, or actually, well, they don't have to have like a super clear idea, but a, a clear idea is a good idea. Um, and I would say that the companies that are going to do the best are the ones that one, know their customers really well, two, have a clear idea or use of technology that, you know, is unique or innovative um, and, and really kind of 
like there's no BS, you know, like it really is going to solve a problem for people. Um, and they've validated it or vetted it in some way, either by talking to, you know, like a hundred customers or by building something and seeing that people actually want it and are paying for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think you really have to have a high bar for yourself um, as opposed to just like an idea. Um, uh, lots and lots of people have ideas. Fewer people are able to implement them and even fewer people are able to get customers that will pay for it and that um, become you know, passionate advocates of those products. So all of that I think is part of it. And then of course being early enough where you haven't diluted yourself um, with other investment so that the investment that YC makes you know, is gonna ultimately make the money if, you, you know, if it turns out that it works out for you um, are all kind of components to the, I think the equation. Yeah, uh, it, it was great to hear the experience. So, uh, last but not least, uh, I want to ask you. Uh, it's actually more personal. So, you mm. pursue such a great career, Chris, and I'd like to ask, what's the next for Chris Messina? Hmm. Um, well, uh, thank you uh, again. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on your show and having me as your first guest. You know, it took a little, um, you know, prodding to to make this happen. I think, you know, for me, um, 2019 has been a really interesting uh, year. It's been a lot of, I think, personal reflection, um, a lot of um, maybe questioning my own assumptions about myself. You know, who am I? What do I want to do? What am I good at? What am I not so good at? And trying to become really, really honest about those things. Um, you know, one of my superpowers is the ability, I think, to construct worlds and to um, become quite passionate and opinionated about things. On the other hand, um, I can also like take sides for, for things that I don't actually believe in. And so I've become a lot better, I think, about catching myself in that way. So when it comes to thinking about like what I want to do next um, in 2020, you know, I, I believe that I believe I have a book in me. And in fact, right now I'm in Maui and one of my one of my goals here was to attempt to try to get that started. And I think I'm in a process of uh, what I think about as a kind of meandering process, which is dabbling in a lot of different things. Um, reading books, seeing how other people approach this process, trying to kind of just sink into, I guess, myself and the material and try mm -hmm. to think about how I can get some of that down. I think the other thing that I want to think about for next year is what is the best way for me to really sink into a problem that I really love uh, and, and working on it with people that um, I think get me and that I work well with and that kind of amplify the best parts of my capabilities. I think what I found is that I'm a pretty particular person to work with, and um, I have a pretty particular approach to, um, I think, seeing, you know, the work that needs to be done and then how to go about doing it. In a way, like the hashtag is like the perfect representation of this because I don't think of myself as lazy, but I think of myself as like kind of calorically efficient. Yeah. <laughs> and so what that means is like I, I like to find all the angles before I do anything, and. That's not always the best. I know for a lot of founders um, or, or makers or creators, what's actually better is to just get something out, you know, throw something over the wall as fast as possible. But I think for me, maybe it's because I grew up, you know, as, as an artist and I feel a need to really kind of understand what it is that I'm trying to convey and trying to get across before I put something out there for you to, you know, tear down. Like I am one of my biggest critics. And so the more that I can do to hone my arguments before I put something out there, I think the better. So when it comes to whatever it is that I'm gonna build or work on next, um, it's gotta fit into that um, model. So I would like to start something again. I'd like to start another company if possible, um, but the shape or form or problem space, uh, I'm still working on figuring it out. 
All right, kids. Oh, I hope all your wishes come true. So, um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we had a great chat with Chris Messina, the inventor of the hashtag. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. It was such a great chat with you. Yes, I appreciate it. And good luck with this podcast. Thank you. So uh, this is the end of the first episode of Four and Five Stories. If you'd like to listen following episode or special clips, please make sure that uh, you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn slash Four and Five Stories. And see you on the next episode.